Welcome into the Maroon Mike podcast. I'm your co-host, Andrew Miller. And I'm your co-host, Colton Watson. And, you know, it's it's still a very busy time. That's just kind of that, uh, that, that time of year for college athletics with um, basketball season in full swing. You have two teams currently on campus fighting for their tournament lives. You got baseball season uh, starting up and, you know, they're five games in, softball and the start that they've had. So, it's a really busy time, and for that reason, we don't need to dilly-dally around much. We need to get right into it and start talking about baseball. So, yeah, we're not going to have much of an intro today. Uh, Mississippi State well, baseball. can't start talking about baseball. I do have to say, as we're recording, Mississippi State has opened up a 19-point lead at the half uh, uh, in women's basketball at home against the Razorbacks. So they can close that one out and pretty much feel comfortable about an NCAA tournament spot, which is incredible uh, after what happened last year for a first-year head coach. Yeah, I was going to throw that in at the end, assuming the game was over with. I wasn't sure if it would be. Well, um, if we don't get to – I'd wanted to make a note of when we're recording, so if we don't get to talk about it, you don't think that we ignored it. It just might not be over yet or uh, something – it might not have gone the way we want. You know, if, if, if we end up collapsing and not winning this, I'm not going to be able to talk about it because I didn't see it. <laughs> that's totally fair. Um. So back to baseball, uh, Mississippi State baseball needed a bounce back in the midweek uh, after the way things went over the weekend. Not that it was at all terrible for MSU the past weekend against BMI, but of course, anytime you lose uh, a game in a series to a team like that, and in the manner that they did it, State fans wanted to see a bit of a bounce back. It took longer to get it than you hoped uh, because State in the first game to ULM loses 11-5. to I believe they were down 11 nothing in this game. Um, pitching continued to be the kind of the disaster that it has been for MSU. Um, fielding errors as well, including just an all-time blooper. That's like the definition of a sports hitter, not top 10, that we don't need to go too far into. Um, State does get some runs late. It, it, this is the first game where the bats don't really show up for MSU, but that's one of the, that's one of the ones where you're looking like, all right, that's an outlier considering how much the offense – has how good the offense we know it can be and has been pitching was the continued concern luckily for msu they got a nice they did get the bounce back they were hoping for on wednesday uh in the second game against ulm they went 14 to 3 uh the uh debut as a starter for gerangelo uh sanja um the you know the ambidextrous pitcher everybody was excited to see it and he goes out and delivers uh touches 90 from both arms Pitches, what was it, four innings, uh, one hit, one walk, seven Ks, um, no runs. Yeah, Beautiful. perfect, perfect, it perfect. Was, it was, and my worst fear has been realized is that, you know, he's a midweek pitcher right now. Hopefully I'll get to see a couple games. I'm not going to make, you know, if he if he wants to start the next midweek game, the one in Pearl, I'll be at that one. So by all means, uh, Mr. Sanja, please go and uh, – have another start next Tuesday. However, other than um, you know, starting on midweek games, I'm it, it, he's going to have to come in for his relief this weekend if I'm going to get a chance to see him anytime soon. Yeah, but uh, definitely as advertised, that's obviously one of the most anticipated debuts by a bulldog pitcher that we've had in a long time, and he goes out and delivers. And credit to the rest of the pitching staff as a whole, uh, they kind of locked it down and you know, handled their business the way you should against a team like ULM. 
obviously it's far too early to sit here and say the pitching staff has everything figured out because it's it's one game in the midweek after they literally gave up 11 the night before. I know it's different pitchers, but you get what I'm saying. Um, but things turning in the right direction. And obviously the bats came returned back the way that you would anticipate for MSU, 14 runs, including Dakota Jordan hitting one of the biggest moonshots you will ever see. Ridiculous swing speed uh, to out to left center. Sends it out of the ballpark. That dude is going to be incredible to watch, which I think that's kind of the theme early in the season for State. And I know you guys talked about some of this in the recap after the opening weekend. The young talent on this team, and along with the new faces as well, just the the, the new pieces here that have come in out of this transfer class, uh, but also the, the, the freshman recruiting class as well, who have been able to step in and so far shown – why they were big priorities for Chris Lamonis. That's going to be something to be, regardless of your thoughts about this season, you know, and I'm not saying that like to write this off, we're five games in, but if you want to go big picture, you got to be really excited about some of the guys that you have on this roster right now who are going to be a part of this program for the next few years. Yeah, so something actually, the segue is right in, and something I want um, and again, Nobody is trying to uh, write off this season. I think everybody was really ready to write off the season Tuesday, and it's and then Wednesday. I don't know if there's a bunch of football fans watching baseball or what. On Wednesday, you know, you beat a team you're supposed to beat, and suddenly oh, everything's fine again. I'm somewhere in the middle there, <laughs> but what? How this team differs from last year's team? Because you know, you have the bad outing on sat, uh, Saturday, and everybody's like, "Oh no, we haven't gotten anything better. Nothing's changed from last year." Da 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 da. da. The difference between these two teams is that this team is talented. I'm going to be completely honest. Last year, there were players not so much in the field, but to an extent, yeah, at center. Um, not gonna, I'm not going to name any names or to, or call anything out, but to an extent, there was some team, some questionable uh, talent as far as you know, are they at SEC level uh, in the field last year, and then especially on the mound, on the mound. Um, you really just looked like a team that lost a lot from a national championship team. You thought that you were going to, uh, of course, having Landon Sims go, get at, uh, go down and Stone Simmons right behind him didn't help things, obviously. But last year, you really needed to restock the cupboard, and you've done that this year. If this team ends up like last year's team, it's not the players. It's not the a talent issue. It might be a locker room issue. It might be a uh, – Game planning issue, but ultimately, and this is again, I don't want y'all to take this the wrong way, but ultimately, if if it goes south this year, it's it's got to you've got to chalk it up to coaching it just on some level, or you know, if we get God forbid injuries again, I don't, I'm not here saying fire Scott Foxhall. Okay, those of you that are, I think you're you're hit putting the panic pushing the panic button a little bit too hard, but what we we've seen what happens, uh how well-managed, albeit very talented, but well-managed the pitching staff was in 2021. And I even wrote articles how if, if you would set the blueprint for that for the years going forward because you didn't let guys get too arm-weary during the year and your best p- pitchers peaked in June. That's when they were uh, doing their best work. We saw in 2019 when Ethan Small was, you know, going seven innings every single weekend. In Omaha, he kind of – you know, didn't have his best stuff. 
almost you could say two years in a row. Although I think in 2018, Ethan Small was really good in the in the World Series. Maybe later on uh, against Oregon State, you could argue that he wasn't. But that's neither here nor there. We know what Scott Foxall can do. We also know how he can recruit. I think those of y'all talking about how the recruiting job has been bad is just really disingenuous and really don't know what you're talking about. And uh, not to sound like, you know, some other sports media people that think they know everything, but Scott Foxhall recruited Will Bednar, Gerondolo Sanja, Bradley Lofton, okay, uh, Aaron Nixon. You know, the list goes on. Pump the brakes on those things. But, yeah, this team is good enough from an individual standpoint that it's all it takes is for these coaches – who have won a national championship, by the way, let's be clear, to put the pieces together and figure out what clicks and how to win some ball games. And I have total confidence in them to be able to do that. You know, with new faces, uh, you're going to have some growing pains. I would, You can chalk up some of the things on Saturday to I think they were going to go in there and let some older guys see if they can handle it. And, if, and when they couldn't, you know, that's why you see that, and we'll get to this later, that KC isn't starting this week, uh, this weekend. And then – I was going to say that Tuesday they just took ULM for granted and weren't focused, but I'll tell you what, that can't happen again. And that might be a coaching thing. I don't know. You can't, you can't show up and lay an egg like that. Yeah, no, that was certainly not ideal after the weekend that you had. Um, and look, that's, that. that's not, I know we can talk about it. it's baseball, long season, a lot changes. At the end of the day, every game still counts towards uh, it. I know it's not the exact parallel to basketball, which, of course, that's my man thinks about that when you think about building a tournament resume. But ultimately, every game does still count towards it, and those are going to be some big RPI hits on State's resume um, that you kind of have to be able to make up for the rest of the way. Obviously, now, the SEC. there's a slight chance. I do want to say this. ULM hit the portal hard last year, and they returned a lot, and uh, VMI returned almost everybody. So there's a chance that those are better teams than they were a year ago. I'm not. I'm not counting on those being teams that are gonna, by no, any means, help Mississippi State down the stretch. Having played those teams, but it they're they're you know they might not be sub 300. I don't even know if there is 300 baseball teams, uh, RPI, which is not what they call it. Uh, I don't know if they're going to be down that low this year. Uh, ULM wasn't that low last year, but quick aside is it not rpi i thought it was it might be i think it might be rpi Never it's mind. rpi for baseball um it's bpi it used to be bpi for basketball well that's espn's basketball power index basketball used to do rpi oh okay and then they switched to the net regardless um that's you know two losses early in the season that you really don't want to have and it's one of those things where you can afford a couple of those losses over the in course of over the course of an entire year right like that's going to happen in baseball. When you when they happen so early, you're kind of like, well, you're cutting it kind of close. But obviously, you're playing in the SEC. You're going to be granted plenty of opportunities to build up. Right. And, and speaking resume. of SEC, a lot of these teams you're going to be contending with for postseason positioning lost similar games. Lamar beat Kansas State and Texas A&M in the midweek. Central Arkansas beat Vanderbilt. So, and that's not. There are some other games too that are that are you know slipping my mind where. You have no idea how these teams lo uh, lost or almost lost. Arkansas almost lost to Grambling. We know how that feels. We almost lost to Grambling last year, but uh, it's not just us. So it was a blip on the what our loss was a blip on the radar in the baseball world. For sure, no state is not alone in taking those losses. It's just one of those things from a 
uh, a fan perspective, when you come off the year like you did, and then early in the mm-hmm. season, you see some of the same issues with the same players. And, uh, and when I say same players, the same guys who were struggling last year, struggling this year. And you, you take some of those losses like that early. You can understand why people would, would have the frustrations. But you do see with the new pieces that are in place that you've got guys who can come together and form a really a, mm-hmm. a perfect – I don't look – I'm not going to sit here and say I see a world where this year's MSU team is going to put together a really good pitching rotation when it's all said and done. Maybe they do. That'd be a perfect world. But I think you can get a solid – group together when it's all said and done and when you combine that with what MSU can do offensively I, I think you're you're pretty set um, and then of course you keep building towards the future which is kind of what I was talking about earlier with having guys like uh, you know go to Jordan Gerangelo uh, and you know that whole group going going forward you can be excited about that um, I know you wanted to talk about something with uh, Sangja so do, do, do you want to get into that oh, now yeah yeah, yeah, real quick. Uh, something I just wanted to, you know, this ambidextrous pitcher thing, this is the rarest of rare probably in all of athletics, okay? So I'm trying to I, I'm trying to think of a comparison, man. I mean, there's no, there's no sense in a quarterback playing with both arms, I guess. That would be fun, maybe. You could roll bootlegs with both ways, I guess. I mean, like I'm, I'm sorry, one, but... I, I zoned out my my internet. I don't know how I'm still recording because my search engine's not want to, wanting to work right now. There it goes; it just loaded. Um, so no, what were you talking about with quarterback? Uh, just trying to legs, just both. like there's nothing that is this rare in athletics, but yet does occur. Well, okay, okay. there was a highlight going around, I think like last year, of a quarterback recruit who was ambidextrous. And okay, um, I'm here. I'm here for that. I would like to see that. I have not heard anything else about this kid, but like, like he could throw with. And I think he was still younger. Like so, like he, he might still have a couple years, but mm-hmm. like was delivering accurate. This it was just like I don't think it's something he's necessarily doing in game, but it was showing him like you know out on the practice field throwing throwing to receivers. I throwing. I with, don't think. It definitely would not be nearly as big of an advantage as an ambidextrous pitcher, though. No, not at all, because that's not like a matchup-based thing. But he was uh, if you're if your quarterback was able to do some Patrick Mahomes stuff, and you know throw from different arm slots, it might help to throw with both hands. Right. That's the that's the big thing with it because he he was making accurate throws with velocity as well. Um, uh, plenty of arm strength going both ways and a lot of those throws you talk about going on the run like on a on a rollout or he was showing some of that so maybe we eventually get that in football but again the only situations where that really matters is if you are having to you know run the opposite direction and then you can make a throw with your other arm that's not it's not at all like baseball where it's matchup based right well anyway there is one notable ambidextrous pitcher in all of baseball history other than Gerondolo Sanja. Gerondolo Sanja is only the second guy, again, not the second guy to ever do it, but the second guy to ever make something of himself at any, you know, play at a D1 level. Pat Vendit. Pat Vendit, he was born in 1985, still still works in uh, in Illinois. He was born in Omaha, a little bit prescient there. Um, walked on to the Creighton Blue Jays. 
got drafted once by the Yankees in like the 45th round and then again in the 20th round the next year. Um, never played for the Yankees uh, in the big leagues, but he did play for a lot of major league teams in very, very short stints, okay? I think he's got 61 total appearances with the Marlins, the Giants, the Dodgers, the Phillies, the Mariners, the Blue Jays, and the Athletics. This is a guy, you know, he threw, throws some two-arm slots, like, obviously, very, very stellar statistically in the minor leagues. In the major leagues, you know, he was adequate, but in the but really in double-A, triple-A, and in single-A, uh, did really well. And the major leagues ended up with, like, a 4.73 career ERA, only pitched 72 innings in his whole career. So, again, very short, short appearances – and uh, that's 72 innings and 61 games. So short appearances and uh, not too many, too many appearances. But this is a guy, he could throw 86, 87 from the right, 82, 83 from the left. And that kind of limited him um, in major, in, as a pro prospect, you know, not being able to throw that fast. But some key differences between Gerangelo and Pat. Gerangelo's delivery is nearly identical from both sides. Pat actually had through sidearm left-handed and right-handed through more overhand. He actually had a torn labrum and, and uh, which for one season only pitched left-handed because he tore his labrum in his right shoulder and then worked with the pitching coach. And he actually developed a, a delivery that was easier on his arm that ended up making his right-handed delivery and left-handed delivery more similar later in his career. Um, Pat is naturally right-handed. He bats left, but everything else he does is right-handed. He can't do anything left-handed other than bat and throw. Gerangelo is naturally left-handed, for those of you that didn't know. I don't know if Gerangelo can do other things right-handed, but he come he came up as a left-handed kid. Um, and again, just comparing, I told you, you know, Pat Van Deet, you know, 87, 80 uh, with one hand, 82 with the other. There, That is funny that there's a difference in the arm speed and even though Gerangelo was born right-handed or left-handed and Pat was born right-handed, both throw faster with their right hand. Uh, Gerangelo does throw much faster, though. Not, again, he touched, I think, 97.8 yesterday uh, with his right hand and 92 with his left hand. So very much a different prospect. Of course, Gerangelo was a draft, a draft pick, a high draft pick out of high school, um, an international player. Uh more more prospecty, more of a talent, I guess, in both arms. You know, really with Pat, again, very, very impressive what he did. I'm not trying to take away from him, but really, you know, he threw with both arms and practiced pitching his whole life and and got about as good as he could get. And if he didn't throw with – if he threw the same way with either arm, he probably would have just been a walk-on at a small college like he was. You know, with Gerangelo, I think either one of his arms is a D1 arm which is insane to think about. He's got two D1 arms. 92 from the left side and 96, 97 from the right doesn't walk around every day. And this guy's got them both. Which is absolutely incredible. So even the other ambidextrous pitcher is still not doing the things that Gerangelo Sanja is doing. He's one of one. Truly one of one. It's absolutely astounding. Yeah, Hopefully you don't put too much pressure on him going forward, but no, I that, that that is a lot of pressure. By the way, for those of y'all that didn't know, Gerangelo was born in the Netherlands, moved to Curacao, grew up in Curacao. His dad played baseball professionally in the Netherlands, but I imagine you know his background is Curacao for his family, and then moved to Miami when he was or the Miami area when he was sixteen. 
Um, no, I mean, it's obviously something very new that you, you've got somebody like that and you're not going to find a lot of comparisons. So no, that's very interesting that you were able to find someone who obviously had a, had, was able to make a career with it. And I mean, hopefully he, he becomes that next guy. Um, and Pat Bendit had the very famous back and forth at bat uh, where the switch hitter, it is, is one of his first minor league games. They went back and forth until the umpire had to intervene. The umpire made the hitter pick first, and then the rules committee had to get together and decide the pitcher will always pick first because there are more switch hitters and they should get rewarded for being a switch hitter, I guess, is basically the logic behind that. So that yeah. is why the pitcher has to pick first. Correct, correct. Um, no, that's very, very interesting. So, and look, I mean, He's going to be a big part of. I feel like at this point we feel like he's going to be a big part of this pitching uh, rotation coming forward. I mean, maybe maybe he becomes a part of the weekend rotation for State if, if he pitches the way he pitched on Wednesday night. He's certainly going to I, I, going to compete for one of those starting starting roles on the weekend, and that'd be that's going to be. I, I'm sure eventually he will get there, even if it's not this year. That's going to be something to watch in SEC play when you've mm-hmm. got a big series at the dude, and you, you have like other. It'll be interesting to see how other teams handle that. Um, because and, it's... And, Go ahead. and speaking of the rotation and how I think – I had a whole scenario where I figure Lofton and Gerondolo could factor into the rotation and maybe Lofton as soon as this weekend. Uh, it was, I thought either him or Hunt might play might pitch on Sunday. And then I didn't think that – I thought they would announce a TBA. I really was – I really was waiting on TBA uh, to, to make his – 2023 debut for Mississippi State, but then they went ahead and ruined all that, all those schemes that I had, and they announced a new rotation uh, with some slight alterations as, as as to last week's. Yeah, so it's going to be uh, still going to be Cade Smith and Landon Gartman as your uh, Friday and Sunday starters, respectively. But uh, we have. Uh, do you do you want to take the first shot at the name? I'm I'm going to take a shot. All right, I'm going to take a shot. It's hard. I'm going to do my best. Now, I, I was dead on with Sanja, and I even and even I even informed a couple people, you know, within the media, hey, it's Sanja, and they still want to say Sinjay or Sanjay or, look, guys, this kid is too good to, to mispronounce his name. Let's just be clear. All right, so Graham, I'm going to say Eintma. And the reason I say that is because there's no way in heck we have two guys with three consonants in a row well, I guess Gartman is three constants in a row. So I guess three constants in a row isn't that uncommon. You know, with St. Joe, you have five. J-N-T or four, J-N-T-J. I don't know how that works. But I think that this is Y-N-T-E-M-A. Even Coach Lamonis can't pronounce it. But I think that Y is a vowel. So it's like Eintma or Intma or something like that. That's that's what I'm going with. I was I was thinking Yitma. But unless it's like Brett Favre's name, where you you the set syllable is backwards in the two letters because it's V R to the R V, it can't be Yitma because the T is before the E. So I'm going to say it's Eintma, Eintma. And that is vocabulary with Colton. Um, thank you, thank you. So, I mean, just first impressions. What, what do you think you we can expect out of him as state starter? That's a great question. You know, he is a left-handed starter. Um, he was a left-handed pitcher. He was the – we were the only SEC team to not start a left-handed last week. So, that'll be interesting. I wonder um, – I don't know. I didn't check the handedness of all of Arizona State's batters. 
Um, I can real quick. I mean, shoot. Oh no, they don't have it. They don't have it. I'd have to click. I have to make like six clicks per player to find that out. So I'm not gonna make do go for some bad radio and do that. But he is a left-handed hitter. ERA of three eight six. Now, if you uh, if you noticed, kind of was the the benefit the excuse me the victim of some bad luck, uh, some errors and some infield singles and stuff on when he pitched in relief last weekend on Friday. Uh, but other than that, I, this is a guy who was not really her- – it was very unheralded in the offseason by everybody except Chris Lamonis and Scott Foxall. They were like, okay, this guy is the guy that y'all aren't talking about that you need to be talking about because he's going he's gonna to be really, really important for us. And, he ha- and now we know that he will be. He's going to be a starter. I don't know if, if that's uh, – you know, is he a three-inning – a one-time through the order guy or a two-time through the order guy? Maybe. Uh, I could see that being a thing. Um, and then, you you know, do you put in Bradley Lofton or something like that right behind him? I don't know. It'd be a pretty good idea to me. Uh, or maybe you go with Gerangelo again. You know, Gerangelo threw 70 pitches last weekend, but, you know, less than 60 with his right hand and less than 20 with his left hand. So you can kind of do with that what you will, but you that, that wear and tear isn't the same. So he could probably go on Saturday. And Lofton, I'd probably – I probably wouldn't throw Lofton again except for maybe an inning or two on Sunday, but, you know, it could happen. And of course, you still got Nate Dome. Uh, we haven't talked about him. Will Gibbs came in uh, the other night, uh, got a got four strikeouts, one hit and one walk in one in 1.1 innings. So that's another guy that maybe he could factor in a weekend at some point. But you're gonna definitely making a change. So I don't want anybody to accuse, uh, you know, Fox on Lamonis of just, you know, giving it to the veteran because they owe it to him or – refusing to make a change because they're stubborn. It took one weekend. They saw enough from Casey Hunt, who did pitch last night, which was a good clue that he might not start this weekend. Looking ahead to the weekend, uh, big series on campus. Arizona State comes to town. And, you know, obviously, that's a program that historically, you're talking about a blue blood in the sport of college baseball. Um, now, modern history has not been as kind. Uh, they've kind of made semi-frequent tournament appearances in, in recent years, but – not a regular contender within the Pac-12. Um, they're now in their second year under head coach Willie Bloomquist. Last year they were 26 and 32. Uh, picked kind of middle of the pack, uh, middle of the pack, you know, knock on wood, in the, in, in the Pac-12 um, this season with a few players named to the, you know, the preseason team. Uh, off to a 4-0 start on the year, though. They did open up the year with a sweep against San Diego State, who is also coming off a not-so-great season, but generally it's a pretty good uh, team there out of the Mountain West. And then they won their midweek against, I believe it was UNLV, who was, uh, I believe, picked to be your is your favorite in the Mountain West Conference. Um, so a good start to the year for them. What can we kind of expect to see out of the Sun Devils when they come to Starkville? You know, this is a it's a team that's trying to remake themselves after a little bit of a disappointing uh, season last year. As as Mississippi State is running Arkansas off the court right now, man. My goodness. But anyway. Arizona State, so they're undefeated. Not, not high or really low scoring games except for a couple. Six five, five three, one zero in three games against San Diego State. Then UNLV six three. So considering who they're playing, they're not exactly knocking the cover off the ball, but they're pitching really, really well. Last year they did not pitch very well. Uh, the ERA was a team ERA of five seven five. This year it's right, it's at two point five. Again, small sample size. Uh, 
But before we get into all that, let's kind of get into some of the hitting. Not going to get too solid into it because it's so early, but so far they're batting 322 with six home runs. Nobody has more than one home run. Everybody, you know, six players have one. Luke Hill, he's actually from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and is a freshman batting 636. He's not up in the order. He's kind of, I guess he's their Bryce Chance in that, you know, he he's not batting, he's not Dakota Jordan batting third. He's down there in the seven or eight hole, but still doing good. Wyatt Crenshaw batting 571. Three different guys are batting 286 with one home run each. And one of those guys is named Will Rogers. So, but they only returned three main contributors in the lineup from last year. On the pitching side, they return a lot of pitchers, but they didn't want to. Uh, they needed to go out and get new guys. And all three of their uh, weekend rotation guys were somewhere else last year. Uh, so, like I said, 575 ERA last year, just a point uh, uh, 2.50 this year. So, again, really improved so far. But, again, San Diego State, it wasn't an offensive juggernaut last year, and they didn't just, in their midweek game, you know, bat – 800 or anything so early returns of san diego state and what we have to know is that it's not exactly a, a good litmus test for your pitching but these guys that they brought in all really kind of got it done at uh their previous stop so ross dunn is a junior from uh originally from florida state left-hander 5.44 era last year now he really started off hot and then kind of slacked off a little bit for florida state but they, they he was you know the the cat's pajamas there for a little bit as their sunday starter Last week, he was on a pitch count. He only threw 47 pitches, and the same is the case this week, what I've been told. Uh, he had a blood clot in his arm that required surgery, so he had no fall baseball. So he's kind of on a, a on a pitch count for the first month of the season. Last week, 2.2 uh, innings pitch, two hits, two Ks, one walk, no runs. Pitched 48 innings last year, 16 appearances, 11 starts. 77 to 26 strikeouts to walk ratio. So really got, got, got gets a lot of strikeouts, not too many walks. Uh, batting average of 230 allowed was two and four. And of course, pitching record is one of the worst stats ever, but he was a losing pitcher last year. Just six home runs given up in those 16 appearances. You know, mid-90s and he has a slider. I, I was, oddly enough, he's their Friday night starter and I found out the least about what he throws. So I found, I know, I know all about what these other two guys throw, but anyway. Christian Curtis, this one actually scares me a little bit. So he's a right-hander. He's also a junior. He's from Texas A&M. He has been hurt. The last two seasons have been shortened uh, by injury. And he said that his last outing, also wrote down, also, by the way, piggyback, going back to Ross Dunn, he's a big Trump guy just based on his retweets. I only saw I saw a couple Donald retweets of Donald Trump Jr. Just thought that was odd that a, a public athlete would do that. Uh because most athletes, especially in college, are so apolitical. Like, they don't do anything political whatsoever because they've got bigger fish to fry. I just thought that was kind of funny. Anyway, Christian Curtis, right-handed, 1.42 ERA last uh, season. 19 innings, five appearances, all starts, 15 Ks, so not a huge strikeout guy, to eight walks. So not a good ratio there, but eight walks, 19 innings isn't, isn't, isn't bad. 236 batting average allowed, uh, two and zero last year. This guy, you know, kind of de- dangerous. He has a slider and a curve and a fourth pitch. I don't know what it is, but somebody said, you know, throws four pitches for strikes. He he'll run it up there 93, 97, might top out at 98. So he can really chuck the ball. Um, again, 
he this is his first year healthy, but even when he wasn't fully healthy, he had a sub two ERA. So this guy is pretty good. Um, last week, five innings pitched, two hits, six strikeouts, three walks. Uh, so a little high on the walks, but good strikeout numbers. No runs. None of these starters have given up a run. And then Tim Manning, he's a junior. He transferred from Florida. He was a relief pitcher for them last year. Not a fantastic relief pitcher. Left-handed guy, 4.76 ERA, just under 23 innings pitched. Uh, he had 10 appearances, and seven of those were starts. 26 strikeouts to 14 walks. So, again, a little bit with, uh, bad with control last year. 293 batting average given up, which is really high. So, we definitely gave up some hits last year. Almost a, a whip of uh, just under two. couple home runs given up. 90 to 92 curve he is a changeup. I've heard I've heard he has a curveball and a slurve. I don't think he has he doesn't have both, but his some scouts call it a curveball, some call it a slurve, just a slider curve. It's just a ball that breaks more diagonal. Um really a slurve is just a, a curveball that or a slider that doesn't do what it's supposed to do. It's kind of it sounds like this dastardly pitch. You're like, oh my gosh, they combine a slider and a curve. Well, it's it's when you throw a curve that doesn't really break like it should or a slider that breaks more than it should. So, anyway. So, those are your pitchers. Um, key relievers, I mean, I'll give you these names. I'm not going to give you all these stats, though. Matt Tilding, Owen Stevenson, Blake Piveroff, uh, they got a guy named Wayne Scott, Piri Bodlovich. All those guys, a lot of these relievers were there last year, and a lot of them were starters last year that have just been outgunned by these transfers and they've been moved into a bullpen role. Um, the other only other, only other thing of note for Arizona State, just four errors so far in the season. So a lot different story from Mississippi State. Definitely a pitching and defense team so far this season. Uh, not night in the woods on fire with the bats is like Mississippi State is, but getting things done on the mound and in the field. Um, not hitting the home run particularly well, even in that dry Arizona air. Uh, this is their first road road games of the week of the of the season for them. But one thing they do have in common with Mississippi State, big on transfers. I would have to say that that's – I'm going to venture to say that that is the most uh, in-depth breakdown that any state fan will be able to receive about Arizona State baseball going in so good good on you colton um Andrew's eyes are starting to glaze over a little bit there <laughs> well i mean look I, I can do the same thing with any uh, numerous other topics so i i can't say much but um i mean look general thoughts going into the weekend uh well i mean what, what do you expect gonna have i mean if you don't pitch you don't win that's that's for that's for dang sure I, I'm liking that they're making changes, uh, and I'm just gonna. If, if the team that played on Sunday and and Wednesday shows up, you might see, you know, a really comfortable, easy weekend. If the team that shows up showed up Tuesday and Saturday, it's who plays. Not only will this weekend be unpleasant, it will be a blowout in the wrong direction. Let me just say that it, it could it could get bad quick. This team is better than the teams that we've been playing. Well, that's that's rest assured. All right, big opportunity for MSU this weekend. Turning our attention over to basketball, uh, you know, Tuesday was a rough, rough day if you were a Mississippi State fan. Um, you, you take a blowout loss in a midweek game to a Sunbelt school in baseball after with, – with all the disappointment surrounding baseball that's happened over the past year. 
And then men's basketball has one of the more demoralizing losses in probably – I can't say in recent years because there's been a lot of them in recent years, but one of the more demoralizing losses this season on the road and up at Missouri, 66-64 to 64 is your final in overtime. Mississippi State uh, held a three-point lead at the, at the half, 34-31, to 31, a game where State offensively – early in the game looked like they were a completely different team. Um, they were knocking down a lot of threes. There was some carelessness as they were pushing tempo. I, I talked about in the preview that I felt that MSU had to dictate the style of the game if they were going to be successful. Because if you let Missouri do what they want to do, which is they want to play fast, they want to push the tempo, they want to take a lot of shots, they're not looking to you know get to the rim, they're, they're trying to pull up from three. Like, that is how their team is built. If you let them dictate how this game is going to be played, I don't think MSU can keep up. And credit to MSU because in the first half, they got sucked into a lot of that, and they did keep up. And frankly, they kept up throughout the majority of the game. The problem was you knew eventually um, you were going to – things were going to fade off. And specifically, I mean, three-point shooting is one of the big things that stands out in this game. MSU in the first half – uh, was 6 of 15 from 3. The fact that they took 15 three-pointers tells you a lot about how this game was going. Uh, but they knocked down 6 of them, 40% from deep. That's You will take that every single time. They kept it up in the second half in terms of the attempts, but boy, was there some aggression to the meat. As they go 0 for 10 from deep in the second half, um, in overtime, 1 for 3, uh, DJ Jeffries knocks down a big one there. State ends up 7 of 23, so just shoots 25% from three in this game. And the reason I'm putting so much emphasis emphasis on that is because from two, I did the math on this earlier, uh, State was 15 of 32, so about 46%. When State did make an effort to get to the basket and or you know get into the paint, get it to Tolu Smith, they were successful. Tobu Smith leads the way with 14 points. He was 5 of 8 shooting, 4 or 5 from the free throw line, 10 rebounds for him. It was a really good game for Tobu Smith. The problem is Tobu Smith only attempting eight field goals in this type of game is simply not getting him enough touches. Absolutely um, incredible because, uh, you know, post-defense was Missouri's weakness. Their uh, perimeter defense was good. They turned teams over, but – Anybody that has a dominant center has been cooking them, including Mississippi State the first time we played them. They did a really, really good job on Tolu uh, for most of that game. And I do think that, you know, I'm not one of those that say you have to stop shooting or you got to tell your players not to shoot. You want to know one way to destroy your team's confidence? Tell somebody not to shoot. And then not only does that destroy their confidence, it disrupts the flow of the offense because then, well – he can't shoot, so I can't pass it to him. So I have to go force something up myself, and you don't move the ball. If you're open, you got to shoot it. I'm listening to the game on the radio, so I don't know how many of those shots were heavily contested, but whatever. I do think there could have been a more concerted effort, perhaps, to get Tolu Smith the ball, especially in crunch moments. And they did. Uh, there were some times in overtime where I'm like, look, he Tolu just scored a couple times in a row. Get it to him and make them make them get the ball away from him somehow. Uh, again. Easy for me to say that when I was listening on the radio, but 
Richard Williams kind of agrees with me, and and that guy knows a thing or two about basketball. So one of it was from a personnel standpoint, and this guy only played 17 minutes. He fouled out pretty quickly, but I don't remember him being much of a factor at all. And I believe they said in the in the in the last game and in the in the let, I believe they said in the broadcast he's someone who's come on in recent games. Mohamed Diara for Kentucky, uh, not for Kentucky, for Missouri. Only five points and four rebounds, but defensively, um, he matched up pretty well with Tolu and gave them some problems. The other big thing I saw Mizzou do, and this was, uh, I mean, credit to Dennis Gates for making an adjustment. They made an effort to, like, they were not going to let Tolu Smith get one-on-one opportunities in the paint because they know they do, do not have guys who match up with him. You, he torched them for 25 last time that they played. So they actually went to more of a zone defense. Like, they – they would sometimes start off in zone and switch over to man, but they, there were quite a few possessions they were playing zone, and it was kind of just, we're going to force you to have to not, like, we're not going to give you any easy one-on-ones to get the ball inside to Tolu. You're going to have to knock down some shots from the outside. And that was kind of the approach they took. In the first half, State was hitting those shots. Second half, you asked if some of those looks were contested. Not really. A lot of them were open looks. There were some that weren't great. Um, but for the most part, they were, you know, they were looks that you would understand them taking. They just weren't – they simply were not hitting. Um, you know, Eric Reed, the the chronicles of Eric Reed continue where early in the game he knocks down a couple big threes. And it's like, all right, it looks like he's figured out something. He goes two for seven from deep. And it, it was a bad day for him shooting as a total – three of 13 shooting for Eric Reed in this game. Um, just – and I do mention getting, like, sucked into – like, this was a game that was tied 57 at halftime. It's not like you were playing – trying to play a super high-scoring game. Because, to be fair, not, neither team was really hitting many shots. Um, but what, what I talk about State getting pulled into, like, Missouri's style of play, State was trying to go fast so many times on offense, and that just is not what suits this team. Um, I know we've all, we, we've all talked about, you know, we, that was a whole it, – it's ironic looking back because if you remember when we were talking about the coaching search, how often we were talking about a team that will play a modern style and is going to play fast, is going to shoot three ball a lot, and how that's all we wanted. And with Chris Jans, that's not how his team is built up. His teams can play that style if they've got the players for it. This team does not. But you look now and it's like this team very clearly, like where they are successful is when they are, you know, taking their time, working the shot clock some, trying to get good ball movement and get those touches into the post to Tolu Smith and let him go to work. And if you get open looks on the outside, obviously you're going to take them. Now, the this, the unfortunate side effect there is teams know that that's how MSU is going to play, so they are going to force State to try to knock down some shots from the outside. That's kind of the unfortunate thing. I remember this was said during the Kentucky game. I believe it was MSU Ghost on Twitter. Um. If I'm miscrediting, I apologize. But I believe he said something to the effect of, like, I think people are going to have to realize this is how, like, until State gets guys on the outside who can consistently show that they're going to make you pay if you just leave them open from deep, Tolu Smith is going to get mugged every single game. That's just how that's going to go. Because until you have guys who are going to show, if you leave us open and give us that space, we're going to knock them down. They know State's game plan is get the ball to Tolu Smith. Right. Um, you say that like there's a free agency or a trend or a, or that Tolu has another year. Yeah. Well, I mean, he does. So he'll be back next Tolu's season. Tolu's a senior. You don't think you think Tolu will be back next year? He has. Well, okay. He could. He has a, he has a year of eligibility remaining. 
The only players who could not return are Eric Reed and uh, Tyler Stevenson. Tyler uh, Stevenson is older than Tolu Smith? I don't know if he's older, but it's about the years of eligibility that he's used. That's crazy. Um, he might I like I don't know officially. I just know that is that is per Paul Jones. Shout out Paul if you want to know MSU basketball and like have the inside info, he is the guy to follow. Uh he's reported that a few times over on his board that the only two players who could not return next year are are Eric Reed, Tyler Stevenson. If we so get potentially another MSU, Smith, that would be crazy. It, look, the aside here, obviously it's basketball. You know, like I'm going to bank, state's going to have a starter transfer. That probably is going to happen. That's not me predicting any one guy. And maybe Tolu decides to test the NBA waters. I, I don't know. I don't know if he's a guy who translates to that style at all. Uh, Tolu has the skill. I don't know if he has the athleticism that they want. He's not yes. very prospecty. He has the patience and the ball skills. Um, he's not. I don't. He might have to. He might have to develop a jumper a little bit. Uh, but I really like how he can you know, operate in small space and go between and around guys and get buckets. Also really strong with the ball in his hand. For sure. And look, I, I would expect Tolu Smith will at least entertain the NBA draft waters. I, I mean, that that is one of the positives to college basketball is putting your name in the draft does not mean that you can't return to school if you, you know, if you don't get the grade back that you want. But the aside here is there's a chance for State to have basically its entire starting lineup back. And you take that and then you add a couple guys who can either mi consistently mix into the rotation that you trust to be shooters. And look, if a guy like Deshaun Davis continues to develop, if Cam uh, or sorry, Shaquille Moore could, if he does, if he were to come back and uh, now he's had a couple rough games here in a row. He, he was not a factor down the stretch for MSU. He was on the bench in this game, um, which I know there's some talk about whether or not he's injured. Christian said he was available. So I, I don't know. I don't know what that was about. What was that? I don't know what that was about. Yeah, not, neither do I. I mean, look, I, frankly, he just he he's not played particularly well the last few games. So, I mean, it, you know, it, it kind of, that kind of just is what it is. You got to figure that out. But the point I was getting at is, you could in theory have these guys all back from a team that, I, I mean, I will say is very like to me they're playing at an NCAA tournament caliber level. Now, whether or not they're going to end up with the resume to make the NCAA tournament, that's another discussion. Um, but you could potentially have all of those guys back next year plus a couple impact transfers and have a team kind of similar to what you had in 2019 where it all sets up for you to not just make the tournament but be a higher seed. Not to get too far ahead of ourselves, we'll see how that plays out. But look, back for this game, again, uh, look, I mean, Missouri had a good game plan. Uh, they, and turnovers continue to be an issue for State. 14 turnovers in this game. Missouri got uh, 15 points off them. Um, compared to just nine points off turnovers from MSU. That was another big difference. And, uh, I mean, look, now State really got lucky that this game did end up going to overtime because with 2.2 seconds left or whatever, Kentucky oh, – I keep saying Kentucky. I don't know why. Missouri on the inbound, I don't – somebody blew an assignment and just, like, left Kobe Brown wide open right under the basket, and he just he just missed the layup. At the as the clock was about to expire, um, with the game tied, go to overtime. State has a couple. Like I think State got up four, uh, but they they hit some shots and Nick Honor, who looked like he's about thirty seven years old, 
knocks down a game-winning who's three. That, who's that guy for Kansas that used to be like that? Harry Ellis. Harry Ellis. You know, same vibes. Very similar, except Nick Honor is also, like, short. And not that I am at all one to talk, but I'm just describing the guy. Has a little stockiness to him. Like, he oh, he's looked, thick with two Cs. Yeah. So, like, he, he does not look like a guy that you expect to be going out there knocking down game-winning three-pointers and, and a, like, a, a knockdown drag-out, like, clash to the end, like, of two tournament-caliber teams. But shout-out to him. He did. Um, and, yeah, Missouri gets the win, and State misses out on a big quad one road opportunity. And does this game – change much for MSU? Not really. In fact, the majority of bracketologists that I've seen that have already done updates kept State as a part of their last four in. Um, this is not a loss. Like, losing in overtime on the road to a tournament team is not the type of loss that's going to, you know, make people change their perception of you that much, assuming that you have, you know, a good enough resume elsewhere. How much does the net factor in? Like, 10-point wins aren't a thing anymore. They still are. Okay. So, but that, that's, that's the problem, loss, though. Is it, does it, I figure a two-point loss in overtime on the road almost makes you – I mean, almost makes you – would bump you up a little bit. It, it totally depends on – this is the thing you have to remember with the net. It's how every team around you is also performing. It's how the teams that you played also performed. And this is a good point that I've heard that we forget about. We see teams – we don't see a numerical value added to any of these teams in terms of, like, what is their actual rating. We just see them ranked. We see one, two, three, four, so on. But we don't know – I'm just going to, you know, make up numbers here because I don't know what the net value is. Like, let's say a perfect is 100. All right, so if team one is rated 97, team two is rated 95, and – I don't know, team three is rated 91. That's a huge gap between team one and team between team three and team two compared to team one and team two. So I don't know. Let's say team three gets a big win. You would expect them to move up some, but they still had a lot of ground to make up with team two. If you get the point I'm making here, we don't know what the difference is between these teams. We just see where they're ranked. So sometimes like a result that you think is, okay, yeah, they're going to move up. uh, They're going to make a big jump up or they're going to fall a lot doesn't actually work out that way because you have so many outside factors because we don't actually know how these teams compare because the net the NCAA does not give us the formula that they use to calculate net. The margin of victory factor is still in there, but it is capped at 10, which is so stupid because a there's so many different ways that you can get to a 10-point basketball game, but to suggest that a 10-point game has the same value as losing by – A, a five-point game – can easily become a 10-point game with just foul birds at with the last 40, 40 seconds. Correct. I mean, easily. Like Mississippi State lost to Alabama in their SEC opener this year by 11. We all know that was much closer than an 11-point game uh, than, right. with how that game played out. But you also can't sit here and suggest that losing by 10 is the same as losing by 30, um, which is – what the the way they handle it. And I understand part of it is because sometimes you reach a point where it's like it's we're we're getting far too much into net talk here, but I understand they want to cap it at a certain point because it's like, okay, at this point you're not really getting a true reflection of the teams. It's just this team's a lot better and they're just 
pouring it on and how, how, you know what's the actual comparison but 10 is a weird is a stoop kind of a dumb spot to turn it off at so speaking of resume uh mississippi state number 42 in the net you were talking about you know how much does net matter again we did our big breakdown a while back and i mentioned how teams that have been in the top 40 of the net that has generally been a decent spot to be i think more specifically top 32 there's never been a team outside of the top there's never been a team that was outside of the top sorry inside the top 32 that did not get an at large bid that might change this year um just real quick looking at uh this is again my computer's being slow scrolling through some of this like uh arkansas is 15 in the net they're gonna make the tournament but Arkansas is being projected as like a a nine like an eight or nine seed, and they're number fifteen in the net. Uh, F A Texas A and M at twenty two is not going to be seeded super high. Boise State is twenty three in the net, and they are firmly on the bubble. Uh, West Virginia is twenty six; they are firmly on the bubble. Utah State thirty one, firmly on the bubble. So there's a there's some high net teams this year that might get left out. So. I don't know, you know, how does that bode for state is kind of a, another question. Um, the big thing with state, still three quad one wins. We are cheering for tonight. If Utah could find a way to upset UCLA, there's a chance maybe the Utes could move back into the top 50 and then it becomes a quad one. Uh, state, over the weekend, state had a pair of quad four wins, or sorry, had four quad two wins. And those have ultimately uh, changed a little bit here because uh Akron fell back below the top 100 and the other thing that's disappointing is we talked about it forever eventually Georgia was going to become a quad three loss it just was the Bulldogs were staying so close they have since dropped sub 135 that is now a quad three loss state's first quote-unquote bad loss of the season they're 138 they could get back within the top 135 which is what you want and as I've said before having one such loss in your resume is not a big problem it's when you have several now, States is six and nine, nice, against quads one and two. That's not great. You want to be closer to 500, but I would also point out that most bubble teams are not really uh, that that different from there. Um, in terms of quality of wins, States' wins are still much better than a lot of the teams in the bubble, and States' one bad loss compared to some of these other teams puts them in a better spot. That's why the State's still being projected in by most people right now. Um the issue is starting to run. Uh, well, I mean, your 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 opportunity to add a big statement win is you know kind of fading because it, I mean it's Texas A and M at this point. South Carolina, they played Alabama close, but that's still going to be a quad four game at home. Which, dear God, please show up for that game because South Carolina, we've seen they're playing better basketball now, and they've also been a better team on the road all season. There was all this hype around Vanderbilt after they won five straight and some talk about them maybe making a run to the tournament. Well, then they went and lost to LSU, who hadn't won an SEC game since, like, early, early in conference slate. So that's a game – like, that's probably going to be a quad two opponent, but that's no longer – we talked about the chance of that maybe becoming a quad one opportunity. That's not going to happen. Um, if you want to feel safe, State's got to find a way to win this weekend. I, I think that's the biggest thing. It's not a – you lose and you're done situation. I, I guess there is still technically a path. Um, but I, I think I mentioned this on the last show. 
going one and one this week is kind of crucial for state because if you want to make a justification where state goes eight and 10 in the sec and again, conference record does not actually matter, but if you want to go eight and 10 in the sec and get in, you need it. You need to pick up a win against either Missouri or Texas A&M and you lost that opportunity against Mizzou. So now you have Texas A&M coming in, which quad one, they're number 22 in the net. You think you stay, even if you were to beat them, they would probably safely stay top 30. And the Aggies at this point have locked up a tournament spot. Like we will see Texas A&M in the NCAA tournament. That would be a huge, huge win for MSU. And if they can get it, maybe you're even in a scenario where beat South Carolina and what happened. Maybe. And I know this goes against what I said earlier. I'm not saying for sure. Maybe, maybe, maybe you could lock it up with a win against South Carolina. Um, But State's got to find a way to bounce back and, you know, get try to find a win against this Aggies team. That's a tall task, man. Uh, little, I'm sure everybody has never heard this before because nobody has said it at all on social media, but did you know that Texas A&M is actually, got, has a chance to win the SEC this year? Um, it actually was shocking when I first heard that, like, dang, like you, you wouldn't think that, but with their conference record, they're right there with Alabama. Uh, now it's been that's a horse that's a dead horse that's been beaten uh, into the ground on social media this week. But Texas A&M has a lot to play for, and they're they're not just going to come in here knowing that they're going to make the tournament and be happy uh, to lay an egg or anything in Starkville. They're going to be getting after it, and they're a really scary team. Yeah. No, they've won uh, six SEC games in a row. They've only lost two SEC games all season. If they were to win out, uh, they would be SEC champions. And they'd be technically co-champions with Alabama, assuming Alabama does not lose again uh, until that game. But because they would have had the head-to-head against the Tide, they would be the actual champs, the number one overall seed in the SEC tournament. And look, A&M is such a weird team this season. A couple weeks ago, I think I pointed out that their resume was kind of BS and it was dumb that their fans were complaining as much as they were. I still stand firm that at the time it was dumb because there was a reason they were very much on the bubble and some people didn't even have them in the field a couple weeks ago. They dug themselves a massive hole. They were 8-5 and five in their non-conference slate. A non-conference slate that was ranked, as of right now, net out of conference strength of schedule, 253 in the country. The thing that kept them out of the tournament a year ago, Buzz Williams did nothing to change it this year and played a bunch of quad four teams, including and lost to a couple of them, lost to Murray State, lost to Wofford. And I know those are programs that if you pay attention to college basketball, you're used to them being pretty good mid-majors, sometimes really good. Both of them suck this year. Those are two terrible losses. They lost to kind of a mediocre Colorado team. And the only two decent teams they played um, were Boise State and Memphis neither of whom are all that great, but, I mean, it's it's decent opponents in non-conference. They lost both of those games. So they didn't have a single impressive win in their non-conference slate, and they put themselves in a position where it's like, yeah, you are going to have to tear it up in SEC play if you want to get to the tournament. Well, credit to them, they've done. Like, they literally have done the, the thing that you would have to do if you had a non-conference slate in, that played out the way Texas A&M's did to make yourself not only get into the tournament but be safely in they have done it, and for a while they were beating up on some lesser SEC teams, some wins that weren't all that impressive at the time, but they've since shown that it's not a fluke, and I think a few people have pointed out, if you were to look on, uh, 
if you were a subscriber to Ken Palm and don't just use like the main normal page that everyone can access, I think you can look at like how t- like how teams rate since a certain date. And I think since like January, Texas A&M is like right there with Alabama as like the best team in the country with how they've played uh, since the start of the new year. Um, they've been playing really, really good basketball. And it you said it, it's going to be very difficult for MSU to come in uh, or MSU to get this win, even in you hopefully a packed out Humphrey Coliseum. Um, but number 24 in Ken Palm, and again, that rating is still down because of what happened earlier in the season. Uh, ranked 22nd offensively, 45th on defense. Don't play super fast, 256 in tempo. Um, but looking at some of the numbers on the year, uh, we're actually going to look for conference games because, again, what they did in non-conference is not at all really indicative of who this team is. So in conference play, averaging seventy-two over 72 points per game, holding teams to about 63. Uh, they're shooting 44% from the field, holding teams under 40%. Shooting, not, They're not a great three-point shooting team, and they do not take a lot of threes. Um, they only shoot about 36%, but hold teams to around 30. This is a team, though, that like they get to the rim and get fouled. They are, I believe they shoot the most free throws per game in the country. Um, they, they make an effort to go and, and draw contact and get to the line. Now, it's not a team that's like got dominant big men or anything. Like they don't have anybody who stands out in terms of like rebounding, but they got guys who are like they're, they're, they're just scorers who go and get to the rim. And right now they're sort of led by the backcourt duo of Wade Taylor and Tyrese Radford. Uh, Taylor averaging over 16 a game in SEC play. Radford over 14 a game. Two other Aggies in double figures in conference play. Uh, you have Julius Marble averaging 11 and a half, and then 10.4 per game for Dexter Dennis. And then their last starter, Henry Coleman, is uh, at eight and a half per game. Uh, from deep, I mean, their guards are sort of the guys there. Um, Taylor shoots 35 percent from uh, from three, 34 percent for Tyrese Radford. Uh, but, you know, no no one else in their st- – well, Dexter Dennis uh, doesn't shoot as many threes, but he, he's 32%. And then no one else in the lineup is, is – pretty much everybody else in the lineup is just, you know, about to get, get into the rim. So, I mean, look, they out-rebound teams by a pretty wide margin, um, by about seven per game. Don't do anything crazy in terms of forcing turnovers or blocks or steals or uh, – well, they do get seven steals a game. So, I mean, there's that. But – it's more that they just they play pretty solid defense. They don't let teams make shots, and they get you in foul trouble, and they get to the line. Um, so that's going to be a, you know an interesting matchup for MSU going into this game. But State's really got to find a way to get a win. I think if State gets a win here, you're in pretty good shape. You did what you had to do this week, but uh, if you you lose this one, you've put yourself in a spot where you absolutely have to win out of the regular season. And then you probably need to do some damage in the conference tournament. As I've talked about many times here, if you are leaving your at-large hopes up to what you do in a conference tournament setting, you are, you've completely just, you know, thrown it up to chance because whether or not the committee is really, yeah, whether or not the committee is going to care about that, no real way of knowing on a year by year basis. I still think State's resume compares better than a lot of other bubble teams um, because of the wins they have and the strength of schedule. But, well, I, I want to pull this tweet up real quick. 
because this is something I hadn't really considered because this was looking at a bracketologist who would be smarter than I am. And this was an interesting point he made. In the last two NCAA tournaments, here are the complete list of at-large bids earned by teams with a net KPI. That's not Ken Bomb, That's a separate metric. And strength of record that were all over 40. 2021 Drake, which was 11 seed. 2021 UCLA, they were 11 seed, last four in. 2022 Rutgers, 11 seed, last four in. 2023, that applies to Iowa, Mississippi State, New Mexico, North Carolina, USC. Iowa's kind of the interesting one in that group because most people have Iowa safely in the field. Um, but the other four teams I mentioned all very much on the bubble. And as you, last couple of years, there's not been many teams. Like basically what he's saying is MSU with where their metrics are at currently is in a grouping that has not necessarily boded well for getting into the tournament. That there've been some that have done it. And again, with the wins state has Marquette, TCU, Arkansas, that holds up really, really well. And maybe a miracle can happen tonight in Utah beats UCLA. And that becomes another big win for you. But a win against Texas A&M would go a really long way. It's just going to be very difficult to pull off. What do you think? Uh, right now, I'd have to take Texas A&M. I like I. I don't know if I can go necessarily go score prediction. I, I think it'll be tight. A&M has played a, a lot of their games have been pretty competitive for what it's worth. Um, it's not been a lot of blowouts this season, but I kind of feel like you're going to get a game that's played in the 60s again. Uh. But it's hard to pick against Texas A&M right now as good as they're playing. And I think State's playing well. I, I hope the home crowd can, can make a difference. Uh, but it, it's, hard to, it's, hard, it's hard to feel that confident right now, not because of Mississippi State, but more so because of as good as Texas A&M is. Um, hopefully I'm wrong. I really, really do hope that I'm wrong. Do we officially have a score update on women's basketball? Yeah, the game should have ended 45 minutes ago, but they're calling fouls with 16 seconds left in a 15-point game. But State's going to win. Like, Arkansas didn't come back, to be fair. They almost did, but they did not. They cut it to 11 at some point. It was a, it was 20, it was a 28-point lead at some point. And I it, saw it was, that. Right. Yeah. It, it was up to 11, but now there's – I mean, they're they're seconds away. Do, do we want to take the risk and assume that this game is over and not no, the game's say over. The game's it's – it's a 14-point lead with less than 14 seconds. They'd have to score a point per second. And they are still calling fouls. Oh, my gosh. I need to go I need to go see the total fouls in this game. It's a, It's got to be 50. I saw Robbie Falk tweeting about it that it's been really, really bad. Uh, 46 like, fouls, and it's dead even too, 23 apiece. My goodness. This is why you, you, I'm going to rant. Final, we won by 14. Okay. Final rant here about this on the show right now. Officials that do that, this is the second or third time we've seen this. We saw it the Tennessee game. The officials that do this are actively hurting the women's game. They are, they are, it is to the detriment. How are you going to grow this sport when you make – Again, what should have been a thrilling game against Tennessee, unwatchable. It was the most asinine, frustrating sporting event, not because the team I was rooting for wasn't doing well. Fouls. And what I'm saying is it's not necessarily that every single – most of these calls aren't fouls, but 
you can't call every single time somebody touches somebody. Nobody, nobody, no, in no league do they call every single foul whenever it happens, every single time. You know, if you're if it's not preventing somebody's motion, if it's not on a shot, if it's on a God forbid on inbounds play on dead balls where they're called in the Tennessee game, they were calling so many fouls on dead balls and, and rebound. And, and the Tennessee game was a lot of fouls called and it was poorly officiated. I can't go back and look and see how many of these fouls actually were fouls, but my gosh, nobody wants to watch you blow your whistle 46 times. That's not what people turn on the TV for. That's not what people go to the hump to see. Okay. It's not about you. All right. These, these ladies work too hard for them to have to stop and start 46 times in a 40-minute game. That's more than a foul per minute. There's only 20 minutes in the game. 46 fouls? Oh, my gosh. I'm, yeah, I'm no. sorry. I don't, I don't have the words to say about it right now. That's just like – that's that's mind-boggling. I didn't realize. Four, that's more than a foul per minute. That's really bad. Um, no, it, it's the point people make all the time about, you know, watching basketball and – Look, I don't I don't get into the NBA. Um, the whole, I think, it, I don't know. Maybe it's just never getting into having a team that I've really embraced and been able to get in, get on board with. But also, NBA Twitter and rings culture and all that kind of stuff just annoys the crap out of me. And NBA like builds everything around that, and NBA coverage is built around that, so it just doesn't appeal to me. However, if you purely are looking at it from a quality standpoint and the product on the court. You have these incredible athletes who are like just ridiculous shot making ability. And the NBA recognizes that and officiates the game to allow that to like be the like the center focus of what happens. Like it's talked about all the time. Like I know people complain about traveling and never getting called and all that kind of stuff. But and like, yeah, sometimes you see some pretty egregious ones in the NBA. But it's also like they let like they let some stuff go because it they know it detracts from the product if you're going to be blowing the whistle every time there's something that's close. College, they want it, they do that. They blow it every time it is what well, we say every time, and then we see what happens against Kentucky. 15 steps. Well, you know, we Brandon Miller likes to get away with carries. We know that. Um that's a that's a dark joke. Um oh my God. Yeah. I stole that off Twitter. I can't take credit. I, Somebody I made that made that response. I can't. I can't. That's a situation. I'm, I'm mad at myself for laughing. We're not gonna we're not gonna get into that. I, I'm not interested in touching that, but that's a situation. Um of course it's Alabama. No, but like they they will call everything and again, it's also talking about getting away with travel. We saw the end of the Kentucky game in Starkville. It's not the college refs miss stuff, it's that they they miss the absolute – it's great. They miss the blatant ones, but then they call everything that's ticky-tack that nobody wants to see called. And it disrupts the game and it makes it unwatchable. And you have to really be into college basketball and really care about your school if you're going to follow the sport um, beyond it. And it ha- obviously it happens in the women's game all the time as well. Um, and we, I mean, we saw it firsthand where the number of officials who just never knew how to officiate for Tierra McCowan and how to call stuff for her. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so – it, it, it it's a problem that has to change. On a positive note, women's basketball getting that win, they – I mean, we've kind of said it. They're a lock for the tournament. That's another big win for them. Not a quad one win with where Arkansas was at in the net, but that was another big win that MSU's women's team needed. 
are, is there any concern about like the lack of quality road wins for them? No, because there's just not a lot of those to go around in the women's game this year. There you go. Um, so what what are we talking about? Like a 10, 11 seed, last four in type deal? Did they just add the last four in for women? Yes. They they just... Had, yes. They just added that because, well, they've always had the like the last four in, like bracketology, but like the play ins, yeah. They just added that's that. That's what I mean. Yeah. The they realize it's really dumb to what I mean, what's preventing you from doing that in the women? I don't think I'm not sure they should have the play ins at all, but if you're gonna have it for the men, you gotta have it for the women. I I mean, I'm gonna say I like the play ins because there's a chance men men's basketball gets in because of it this year, but the honestly, the the play ins the benefit. John Rothstein does this thing because obviously he 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 does a lot of things where he just tweets the same stuff over and over. But he's been on this shtick for the past few years that every automatic qualifier should automatically get into the like the, the main bracket. So if you're a sixteen, like what some of those tiny tiny leagues, like it tends to be some of the HBCU leagues. Like the SWAC is almost always playing in the in the first four games for the sixteen seeds, and his mm-hmm. argument is. Put those 16 seeds, like move some of them up to 15, let them all be in the bracket, and then your play in games can sit like the, the last eight at large bids. It should be. The, it should be. That's how it well, should be. Well, here's the reason those tiny leagues do not want that to happen. Because if you let them play against each other, that means those coaches get to add NCAA tournament wins to their resume that they otherwise would not get. And they get the money of an NCAA tournament win that they otherwise would not get. So they don't – they do want to play the – They they want the play-in games. Those tiny okay. leagues want the play-in game. So they can say we want a game in the tournament. Correct. And they you get a check for that. Their conference gets money for that. Oh, like from the – from the like the coaches league? obviously do or want from it because, the, yes. From the March a, Madness, from the – all the money that the, that, the, that the NCAA makes, it spreads – yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so like – Yes, the coaches want it from like building their own resume type stuff, but the conferences like well, the conferences will never get, those conferences will never get on board with that because it's like these are literally our only chances to get some get some revenue out of this thing. Um, I mean, I mean, why don't you should just be that that wasn't a problem for the University of Maryland or Baltimore County? Pretty sure it's Baltimore College. You regardless, University Maryland Baltimore College. I believe that's what it's called. Hold on. I could Three, be wrong. Five. We have less than a minute on our Zoom, so you better be fast in this. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I don't care. But I mean, it's not it's not worth it. Baltimore County. Oh, got me. All right. So, all right. Uh, hopefully, MSU is not playing in those games. We would love for them. Well, if they're playing in that game, because that's the only way they made the tournament, we want it to happen. Otherwise, we would love them to be actually in the full field. That's going to do it for us today. Uh, we're almost out of time. So, thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks, Cole. Come to the hump. Pack the hump. Uh, yes, pack the hump. As always, swing your sword, hail state.